This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links and being a patron over at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for April of 2017. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm Jeff Greiner, and in each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book for this time around is The Verdant Passage by Troy Dinning, who we'll be talking to later in the episode. Next month, we'll be reading the book Skullsworn by Brian Stavely, a standalone story in a setting with several books following a priestess assassin of the god of death. We're set to finish at the end of June. Please feel free to join us. But now, on to the book for this month, The Verdant Passage. Yes, Eric here. Oh yeah, hey, Eric. <laughs> Eric's with us as always. Man, I'm bad at scripting. Hi, Eric. Hey. <laughs> Eric, why don't you tell us about what The Verdant Passage is? You read it first. Yeah, a long time ago and back again. Uh, but yeah, no, it is introduction to the world of Dark Sun, the world of Atas. And you're basically, it is three ca- characters from three spans of life. You have uh, the gla- slave gladiator Maul Rickus. You have the mage uh, Sidira. And you have the noble Aegis of Asakals. As my host, getting involved into a conspiracy to basically assassinate the evil tyrant King Kalak as he is preparing his big games to and a big huge ceremony to become a dragon. Hmm. And being a dragon in the world of, of Athos, right, is a, a bit different than than traditional fantasy settings. Let's talk a little bit about the setting of Dark Sun for people who aren't already familiar because Dark Sun is a very different sort of fantasy setting that goes back to the 80s? No, that... it, was, it was released in 1990. 90? Ah, oh, it's close. Yeah, 91 was the book when it was published which was the first book. I think it came out in actually 91. Yeah. The book and it's not just 91. dragons that are different, right? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us, tell us how Athos is different than your typical fantasy setting. Well, Atos is basically a desert world that has a wasteland. It's like a post-apocalypse. There was a big, huge war in the past uh, where magic basically is powered by the land itself. So, big wasteland. There's a bunch of city-states, and these city-states have like a tyrant ruling that that enslaves people and and gives power to their priesthood, which is their Templars. And does slavery is rampant. Magic is basically only controlled by those who are powerful, which is basically the tyrants that they, that they control. So the the sorcerer kings, right? Isn't what they're yeah, called? Sorcerer, yes, sorcerer kings and sorceress queens. Mm-hmm. I, I once upon a, uh, I think it was in the fourth edition days when the, the the fourth edition version of Dark Sun came out. There was there was discussion of how the fourth edition sort of core setting concepts was that in you know in the beginning there was a war between the the primordials and the gods 
Um, And the gods, you know, won and chained the primordials or whatever, and the world became what the world was. And then when Dark Sun came out, they said, yeah, now imagine that story was reversed, right? In the beginning, there was a war between the primordials and the gods, and the primordials won, and the primordials are uncaring, you know, entities of primal nature, you know? So they don't care about the people. They don't care about the environment. They don't care about any of that. And you have a a setting where magic is is prevalent, but using it destroys – all the life right it drains the life out of the land and whatever and that and that's how the the massive desert and what have you came to be so you have this oppressive realm and you basically really in need of heroes to stand up and oppose the status quo that has been set up in in this world that is just keeping stable and i think also the uh, one way i could help describe it too is that you kind of take fantasy but also have it meet pulp egyptian slash roman mm, okay yeah i was kind of thinking like take fantasy mix it with a little bit of like mad max and uh a bit of like john carter from mars and i think there are degrees of that too in the book yeah. but i definitely picked up as i was reading it some uh really roman influence with uh the nobles and how their like manor estates were oh sure and then the Egyptians, in terms of, like, uh, the, he's building this big ziggurat, z- 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 mm-hmm. and they're using slave labor to build it. So to me, that's, like, pulpy pyramid stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true, yeah. I get that. In, in the setting itself, if it goes, uh, each city-state had a culture to itself that actually evoked from any of the world cultures that we've had. You had uh-huh. a city that was more Greek in nature, there was more a city that was more Mayan in nature and stuff like that. Sure. So Now, this one took, takes place in the city, the, probably the most famous uh, Dark Sun city of Tyr. So what's the what's the influence, the real-world uh, analog to, to Tyr, do you think? You're, you're, the, you're our expert, Eric. Do you have any yeah, idea? No. I think what's sort of like a, a sort of Roman style. Okay. Sort of like so, like sort of like Tracy's talking about. There's this Roman yeah. style nobility, and but and yeah, yeah, they're building those ziggurats and that kind of stuff. Cool. Yeah. And so there's that part, and then Dark Sun also kind of takes the standard fantasy races from D and D and makes a lot of changes. Mm. Uh, one of the most common ones is like halflings are not the somewhat cuddly. <laughs> halflings are not hobbits. Right. They're not hobbits. Yeah. They're not the, the kind want to stay, stay at home and all that. No, they, most of them live in a big, huge jungle forest, and they pretty much eat anything that is not a halfling. Right. And they're they're yeah. known, at least in game terms. Uh, I was first introduced to halflings in Dark Sun as, oh yeah, they're cannibals, right? So when people mention that they're cannibals, I tend to remind people cannibals means you eat your own flesh mm. and since halflings if you're human and that's a halfling well you're not a halfling so you're because <laughs> oh, one of the things they do go into the setting is that halflings will never ever eat any other halfling mm. but they will they'll eat humanoids which in yep. D is kind of like a, a weird bad thing right. yeah yes yeah, so 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 halflings are are people who eat the the flesh of humanoid sentients uh, and live out in the wilds. Uh, elves are are sneaky and and treacherous and, and but they're merchants and they go they can run through the deserts and and yeah, steal like things. Um, 
what do we have? The dwarves have this uh, this focus where they they have a tendency to swear their their vow of allegiance to something to some sort of task, and then they have to complete that task. If they don't, then they they raise from the dead as some um, undead yeah. creature. Yeah, basically, you took the stubbornness that is known of dwarves and just upped up a notch, mm-hmm. making their own focus. Yeah, and then the, and then they introduced some some other like there's a lot of weird alien sort of mutant you know post apocalyptic as you would expect creatures in the world as well right the the that were introduced to one in the form of a monster early on in the book the the gauge which is this weird like crab like thing almost uh, that hides crab, behind a shell hide. but yeah. yeah but it's also like psionic and it's got these weird like feathery feelers on it that that it smacks things with. There's probably actually something else we should talk about. Sorry, guys. Oh, yeah, go. I was going to say the psionic part, Mm because we talked about magic is something that typically the sorcerer kings and templars can do, although um, other people can as well. They've sometimes learned it, but it takes um, life force in order to do magic. But Mm -hmm. psionics, so psionics is kind of like the more common magic of the world, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't require life force to do yeah, in fact, they actually go into it a little bit when they're talking about uh, um, what's his name, the noble, Edges of Asticles. Yeah, uh, they they because he's the psionicist sort of of the party. If there's a party at this point, because not really, it's more of like three different stories that sometimes weave in and out of each other. Um, but he's the psionicist uh, of the group, and and at one point early on, when he's sort of when they're establishing, you know, sort of who he is and what he does the author makes it a point to sort of describe, oh, well, people don't really know where their power comes from. There's all these different theories. It, you know, could be from some great beyond. It could be some, you know, something that some people think it's, you know, from the the power that that is within every person, you know, so whatever. All we know is it's not killing everything around us. Yeah, but yeah, no, so there's psionics, there is uh, arcane magic, which sucks at life, but there's also... Uh, you don't delve that much into this book, but there's also nature magic, mm. which is uh, spirits and the elements and all that. Yeah, and we get a little bit of that uh, nature magic, right? When they go off to uh, to get the spear. Yes. With the with the, from the halfling tribe. So so let's get a little bit into the story here. We we first we're first introduced to to Rikus or Rikus. I think the audiobook pronounces it Rikus, but I've always heard it Rikus, so I can go either way. I've always pronounced it Rikus. So. Yeah. Uh, so we're introduced to him in early on, like chapter one, uh, and it, which kind of establishes that I don't know whoever I, whichever character I read about first in my head ends up being the main character, and then on listening to it the second time, I'm like, except he's not really the main character because he spends, you know, he gets in one fight in the first chapter and then spends like half the book sitting in prison doing nothing. Yeah. Um, is really the the main character for much of the book. Yeah. She's the one that basically managed to tie the the whole story. She weaves a story. Also, she's the one that moves between starting the slave pens, trying to set up uh, Rickus to be to be the champion to be able to help out in, in the plan of the Veal Alliance, which is the secret order of mages that are, are opposing the Sorcerer King. All right, they're the, they're sort of that's the resistance. Yes, All right, they're the ones that are that are secretly. Um, Plotting against the the sorcerer kings and and what have you, uh, but also you know secretly teaching people magic, and trying to teach people a uh, a type of magic that's not going to kill everything. Take a little bit of life force, but not enough to kill it. 
the difference between the defilers and the preservers. Right, which they don't get into in this book at all, but we're, we're about half talk, discussing the setting and half talking about the book, right? Yeah. So this is sort of a classic uh, Dark Sun story. Like I, I knew elements of this story prior to having ever read the book. I'd never read it before now, and yet I've had a little bit of experience as a gamer uh, who's played Dark Sun a little bit. Um, and, and kind of knew the the gist, right? The the idea is that uh, Rickus is this this gladiator. The Veiled Alliance uh, has plans for him, even though he doesn't know it, because he's sort of the champion of the gladiatorial arena. He's supposed to fight in these big games that commemorate the the opening of the the Ziggurat when it's finally finished. Um, and the Veiled Alliance has plans to to secretly sort of uh, get him on their side using Sidera. And, and get him this this special magic item called the Heartwood Spear that he will then, at the end of the games, throw at Kallak and the spear will kill him. Um, and then we discover that Kallak's whole plan all along is actually to to use the opening of Games of the Ziggurat and he's got all kinds of things set up for this massive, powerful, elaborate... Uh, um, ritual, if you will, that involves uh, the death and sacrifice of every single person who attends the games, uh, but transforms him into this great and powerful dragon. And the dragons are sort of these things of legend and myth and uh, and destructive forces of nature uh, on on Dark Sun. Uh, and they're they're powerful. They're magical. They have all forms of all forms of magic, both psionic and, and divine and uh, and arcane. And um, you know, you don't mess with a dragon in Dark Sun. Because Dark Sun is super deadly, and the dragons are the top of the food chain. Yeah, and well, in this case, in in the region, sort of Tyr and all the other city states where where the book is set, there's all, actually only one dragon. Right, the dragon, the dragon Tyr. Tyr. Yeah. So. And and the noble tries to stand for virtue, and it, to me, is like a very Roman. Oh. And, uh, inspired person yeah. yeah and he totally owns slaves because everybody owns slaves yeah. uh but but he's you know he's nice to his slaves and expects uh that they actually like him yeah and then kind of well, discovers that that may not entirely be the case if they had their their chance they would rather be free yeah. that's the interesting thing when i read it when i was 14 years old aegis was my favorite character i always liked it but now that i'm 40 year old reading it i was reading it like wow aegis is very naive yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I read it expecting uh, Rickus to be my favorite because I had it in my head from hearing other people talk about these stories that he was sort of the cool character that I would liked. Of course, I people were telling me those stories probably in, in middle school, right? Yeah. Um, so that may have colored their perceptions. Um, but yeah, no, uh, uh, they're all pretty flawed characters. Uh, I guess if anybody... Oh, you know who I like the most? The, the Veiled Alliance mentor. Who who, oh, uh, who doesn't make it? No, well, yeah, uh, Tecundeo or something like that. Tecundeo, yes. So Tecundeo yes. was my was my was my favorite character because um, he seemed to have it together and also a moral compass. Whereas uh, Sidira was 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 developing a good moral compass. I mean, Carnev already had one, but was also like, I mean. She lives in, in Athos, right? She lives in Tyr, and she's been a slave, and she's yeah. had she has this this history, and that colors her morality, like it does, you know, like it's supposed to kind of color the morality of everybody in the world. Nobody's really innocent, except apparently our psionic, psionic noble. Well, I don't know if he's innocent because I, but because he doesn't own the sleeve. Well, like, yeah, that was I, the I guess innocent's not the right word. Naive. 
Yeah, and he does get to like this part where he realizes he's a he's a hypocrite for owning slaves, but talking about how you know it's all about how you treat them and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. When it's, in reality, he realizes he didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, basically, that's basically happens when he learns that his his best slave, his manservant, mistreated him with his best friend, the mischievous Tithian. Yeah, and what's been interesting about there is that the uh, his slave is a dwarf who has a focus, and the focus is to serve him. So basically, in order for the chance, and the reason why he uh, betrayed him was because he had a chance to become free. Mm-hmm. So he valued freedom over the fact that he would come back to life as a well, not back to life, but he would become a banshee when he died. Right. Yeah, he was willing to sacrifice his eternal soul, so to speak, in order to have you know some time of freedom. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a question. It's it basically is seems to be the question about live free or die a slave. Mm-hmm. And he would rather live free than die a slave. Yeah. After what? What it was? He, at one point, he said centuries of serving the family. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, what did, what what did we uh, what was our favorite parts of the book? Because uh, I I actually um, enjoyed this more than I probably expected to enjoy it. So, Tracy, do you want to go? Uh, I think I liked having a decent cast of female characters, mm-hmm. which I I wasn't entirely expecting. And sometimes, like other Dark Sun stuff I've read, hasn't had that as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also liked how he changed. As he he kind of threw in some of those quote unquote curveballs, so it, we we just talked about like coming to the realization that he was be, the noble was being a bit of a hypocrite and challenging like the underlying slavery is okay because we're in dark sun and mm-hmm. and everything. And also, I noticed uh, he started off the book by introducing the female characters by probably how attractive or how. The, almost it felt to me like the reader would react to seeing them rather than necessarily how they are in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it particularly came up with the female Templar to me because it was like, oh, she had a nice body, but it was too stern looking. Or uh, the, like that. the one that was, I mean, she didn't even make it past the, the introduction, did she? Not really. Because yeah. <laughs> she was the <laughs> one then, working on the ziggurat and, then, and it wasn't quite uh, getting done fast enough and Kallak killed her, I think, in the introduction. Yeah. yeah, and that's why we know that uh, was it Tiffian? Tiffian was put in charge. Yeah. yeah, and like why he was so like he he really wanted to get the job done, um, but then later on he starts describing male characters that way too. Mm-hmm. At least one male character, uh, and then also they I, I enjoyed the part where uh, what's his name the the mole uh, Rickus Rickus yeah he so he has two lovers that get introduced pretty quickly as being his lovers. One is his fighting partner, and the other one is Sidira. Uh, but it's kind of never mentioned that mm-hmm. why wouldn't any of the women have two loves? And later on, it's like, Sidira's like, why? I could be into both of you guys. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. there's no reason why not. Yeah, right. It was, it, was, it was a conversation, I think, between her and uh, Kandeo, right? Uh, yeah, and he was like, "Well, I thought you were into into to Rickus. and she's like, "Yeah, and why can't I be into into to both guys? You know, don't be so old fashioned." So apparently, they have the same concept of old fashioned as we do. 
Right. Yeah. And I, but, but I liked it because like it kind of fit into that. It started off in a way I think that's very comfortable for many people reading and then eventually changes slightly and introduces potentially new concepts or like, Hey, why would you ever think this way? Well, and it does so in a way that fits the sort of dark, gritty, slavey nature of of Dark Sun as well, right? She like she specifically describes her her coming to to that place, or not even coming to that place, but her being in that place, because um, it's not like it was a journey. That's just sort of always been her her norm. But she also Wait. describes about how how um, her family's owner like considered her mother to be breeding stock and and what have you. So so it, it also involves the the dehumanization and oppression of, of slavery um right that is prevalent in the book as well right so i felt like it did actually kind of um start to critically examine some of the tropes that are just kind of taken for granted mm-hmm. right on. so eric what do you like what's your favorite thing about the book i really like the the amount of description for the casting of the magic spells her grabbing them grabbing components and you actually see it and all that I mean, it really added and all that, like, oh, okay, and how they use it and all that. It's not often you see that in D&D books. Mm. Yeah, and part of me wonders if, like, so a lot of times I think D&D books take a shortcut on that stuff because they figure, you know, this is the 732nd D&D book that's come out. Like, people know how magic works, or if they don't, don't, they'll just accept it at this point. Uh, yeah. Whereas this was the first book in this setting, and magic yeah. does work differently in Dark Sun. Um, so I wonder if, if um, Troy yeah. Denning didn't feel the need to maybe describe, describe some of this a little bit more, because it's kind of a big deal. And with just the magic, he also was doing the vivid descriptions for the psychic battles that were happening. Mm-hmm. You know, even though there was nothing that the characters were really seeing outside of their mind, mm-hmm. you still... It was still full image with fields and stuff like that, just going there to fight. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, and that was interesting to to me too. Uh, there's so much about what I originally know from the olden days, if you will, about Dark Sun comes from the the second edition days, yeah. when the the setting book and uh, box set and all that came out, and and I had friends that were reading the books and that were into it and whatever. So there there are moments where I'm like, oh they're describing this sort of psionic battle, if you will, in a way that's pretty consistent with the psionic rules for second edition. Um, it does, it's not really how psionics worked in third or fourth, and we don't have psionics for fifth at this point, but it was pretty consistent with, with what you might envision as being a psionic battle from the old second edition days. Yeah. So it's not like I was seeing the dice roll, but I could kind of uh, imagine the dice in the, in the background if I really tried to. So anything else that you were really into, Eric? Looking at it again, I was really liking seeing, now noticing again, the, the character development, the character that was changing, the, that that happened over, over Smash. Um, I was, got more fascinated with Tatian as a character uh, okay. now than never before. I mean, as a kid, I always felt he was just a bad guy. This, this time I was seeing more Wait a minute, no, he's just trying really to survive. He's very fearful of basically of his life. And Well, and he is kind of a bad guy, right? Because he's totally yeah. willing to sacrifice anything and everything and everybody in order for his survival. Because his survival yeah. is what's important and you know, forget the rest of you. Yeah, no, um, he's But not, he's an interesting sort of 
He's a bad yeah. guy who's not going out of his way to be a bad guy. No. He's willing to take concessions and help out to do stuff as long as he gets to survive. Right. Yeah, I, I was interested in, in, in Tithian. And if I understand where things go, and I may not because this is the only book of the series I've read – um, but but from the vague understandings I understand, I, I think I'm going to see more of Tithian in future books of the series. So, if you continue reading, you will not be disappointed. Okay. You will see he does show up, and he there are some storylines that happen with him. Right. So so I think um, all of those things I, I enjoyed, uh, and I enjoyed uh, especially I, I listened to it on accident. I actually listened to it a month early, and so I've I've been re-listening to it the last week or so, and I didn't quite get done with it the second time. Um, but I, I enjoyed, um, Sidira a lot more the second time around. I think I had it in my head that, that Rickus was the main character because everybody, when I was young, thought he was the coolest character. Um, and the first time that w- reading through, that was sort of in my head and, and letting go of that the second time around, um, she became a lot more interesting to, to follow along and, and see where she was going and what she was up to. Um, so I enjoyed her as a character. I also enjoyed... All these little hints. Oddly enough, as as interesting as Dark Sun is, um, these are the kinds of settings that lose interest to me real fast sometimes because everything is so much of the same thing, right? Everything is weird, but everything is weird, right? So it stops being weird because it's everything, yeah. um, and, and you know everything is desolate and everything is is the morality is skewed and every you know all of that is is everything, right? So it gets it gets a little old and monotonous. Um, and yet everything about this book seems to introduce like exceptions to all of those rules, right? Um, there's a, a decently large section of, hey, let's go to the jungle that nobody else in the world even knows is there, right? Or very few people know even exists. Let's go into Undertier and discover these ancient ruins of a civilization from when there was flowing water and, you know, there's bridges that now exist but serve no purpose um, because there's no water there anymore and whatever, right? Uh, there's this hint of this ancient pre-apocalypse history um, that's, that actually makes the whole setting way more interesting to me. So, so I found that to be, to be really intriguing. So I think those are my favorite things. So what are, what are some things we think could have been uh, improved upon, elaborated on? I can start this time if we want. Sure. I found a, a couple of areas where I felt like uh, things just went quickly and I never quite got a sense of the setting or what th- things were go- what was going on, right? So one of those was uh, Rickus, right? Because I, I expected him to be the main character and then uh, upon further examination, I'm like, I, I, like, he's probably the character of the main characters. He's probably the one we know the least about, um, that I'm the least connected to because uh, he also f- does the least amount of growth. You know, he kind of becomes the good guy and does the right thing in order to take down the king. But he kind of always didn't like the king. And if he had thought from chapter one that he'd ever have the opportunity to kill the king, he'd, he'd have probably jumped on it. Right. Um, so I don't know that he really developed much as a character. Uh, and maybe he will in, in, in future installments. Um, I don't know. Uh, and and I also felt like the the idea, given that the setting is like everything is a desolate wasteland, and the fact that there are parts of the world that are not desolate wastelands is kind of a secret of the setting that's supposed to be a rarity. Um, the fact that they went off to the the jungles where it's not a wasteland and the task of getting there was like not even mentioned in the book. It was like, oh yeah, we're going to go on this thing. Gather up your supplies. Go into the desert. 
and we're there. Wait, what? What? Well, like, like that's supposed to be this impossible thing. That's why nobody knows that that there's life out there. How is it they yeah. did it in in like not even a montage? It was just a, and we're there and we're and and it was done. Um, yeah. So that felt a little uh, anticlimactic. And now I understand. I don't know that I necessarily want to get bogged down in all of that, but. Um, you know, the setting is supposed to be really rough. I remember in the second edition days, like this was the one setting where everybody's like, there was no level one characters. You started at like level five because otherwise you're just dead and everybody's stats were higher because it was such a harsh setting and all, you know, all these special rules to make things even tougher because it's dark sun. Right. And then they, they go on this massive impossible journey and it just sort of happens and they're there and, and there's no description of the struggles. You know, they don't lose anybody along the way. There's no expenditure of, of significant resources. It just sort of happens. And I don't know. I wanted the world to be deadly and, and that didn't make it seem deadly to me. Yeah. The, the journey I did find, I thought from what I remembered, I would find it, but I thought it was more to the journey than what happened. Cause I was like me too. When I was rereading, like, well, they're there. Mm-hmm. Cause they're it, between between on the maps between Tyr and the forest ridge there's a big huge mountain range which is not even mentioned in the, mm-hmm. really in the book from what I, so i mean there's mentioned in the background that there's mountains but they don't mention about their journey they mention about there's it took four days in the book to get there and four days back four so, days why is it that nobody knows that this jungle is there <laughs> it's four days away <laughs> i know this, uh, sometimes the setting that apparently does it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. That, to me too. It's like I, when I when I read that, like, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, why is, why isn't Calic there draining it all of all of its life in order to fuel his magic? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, they obviously couldn't do a long rest after they got back because that's when the games start. Right. Yeah, yeah, and they disappear for like a week. Like the prized gladiators of the of the arena disappear for like a week, and then just sort of show up, and everybody's like, "Oh, hey, you're back, slaves who just disappeared for a week. Go ahead and get in the arena." Like, that's weird. Yeah. But it was kept a secret that they were missing. Yeah. Yeah, but somebody knew. The pride, the the, the prized gladiators for were gone for a week. How does nobody know? That's true. Well, that's what the Templar did. He he helped. Oh, that's cover right. Uh, Tithian it. covered that up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It was like their their what they worked out as their deal. And people and have just is, sort of learned not to ask questions because people who ask questions get killed. Yeah. Oh, well, and like, and there are. I think there are some of those areas where some things are incredibly detailed, way more than one might expect. Mm-hmm. And then, and like you're saying, the other things are are kind of just rushed or because like we learn about how the i forget exactly what creatures they are but the creatures in the grooves uh that that as boys the noble and, and templar had to fight right oh, yeah. like the father sent them out to kill them yes. and then he finds out later oh the creatures are actually what helps to make everything live yeah. uh, and that's why his grove is the best grove so we learn like that sort of detail but then I, I still don't quite understand what the globes were that, like, I, I guess, I know, I understand that they're, they were helping Calic uh, survive. Focus the energy? Oh, yeah. That was, the, 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 I that was part of the ritual, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But I yeah. didn't understand exactly what they were, which was fine. But it was just kind of strange to me that I get, like, that level of detail about yeah. the growth, but not about the thing After, after all of the discussion of... of 
um, the descriptions and the detail involved in magic and psionics and all of that. The, the whole story really hinges around the fact that Kallik is trying to do this massive ritual. And we have all these details about, oh, it takes these obsidian globes, it takes this giant hidden obsidian pyramid, but it also takes this rainbow painted uh, giant ziggurat and the deaths of thousands of people that have to be sacrificed and, and X, Y, and Z. And these are all these components. And yet we have no idea what the ritual is doing and how it's supposed to work. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Like even things like, you know, there's four different globes that represent harnessing the four different elemental energies and the pyramid, you know, something like that would have at least given a hint. Very good. Other thoughts, things that that were, were, you know, could have been improved upon, you know, if it was a longer book or if it was rewritten today. Well, you know, I I think in more than the the end of it seems to be a bit more rushed than Mm. the the start of the book. I mean, there's a lot of introduction in the start and all that, which is great. And then it seems, okay, let's get this done and all that. Let need to finish this and all that. So, I mean, if, it w- if he was able to make, put in mo- more pages, more books, might I be able to, to cover those, those gaps that and make add more details mm-hmm. that you feel missing. So, Right on. And this is an older book. It came out in what the early nineties. Came yeah. out in one. So, so uh, as an older sort of D and D book uh, than we've necessarily read in the past, how, how does it hold up? I feel it, I feel it holds up. I mean, I'm a fan. Of, I'm a fan of Dark Sun. It is Dark Sun was this book was actually my ever first D and D book, so there's that nostalgia value for me for reading it. But reading it, it's like. I'm reading again. I'm seeing stuff that is different than when I f- first remember it. So, and it's, I'm still enjoying it and enjoying different things out of it. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think you know this Troy Denning guy. He's got a future. He knows how to yeah. write a book. <laughs> so, uh, no, but I, I think it, it came together pretty well. Um, I was, I was su- pleasantly surprised. I honestly didn't know that I thought it would hold up that well, um, especially given the very. Um, late '80s, early '90s cover art that's on the that's on the books. I'm trying to remember um, uh, what is she? She is wearing like this weird sort of '80s hat, and, top. And, hat and halter top and and pants that yeah. Uh, and and he's got this the, uh, up front the the our psionic noble whose name I always lose has this you know kind of '80s long hair look going on. Um, you know, so so I expected it to be. Um, a little dated and and it actually held up better than i expected it to um so and and even as tracy pointed out challenging certain norms and whatever that um i don't didn't see a lot of of uh fiction challenging those norms at, in that time period so um i was i was pleasantly surprised i'm i'm intrigued to check out the the other books tracy other uh, last thoughts for you how'd the book hold up i think it did decently well i agree with with your assessment on it Okay. Cool. Well, maybe we'll uh, come back and, and check in with these books at some other point in time and, and see how they did. But not next time. Cool. Next time we're looking at, what was it, Skullsworn? Skullsworn. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, that's the end of our discussion. Uh, next up, we're going to talk to the author of the whole Prism Pentad series. This is the first book in that series, as well, and the author has also done many other books, both in D&D and Star Wars. 
Uh, but first, don't forget that if you want to support the show, you can do so by shopping at Amazon or DMs Guild using our affiliate links over at thetomeshow.com or by being a patron over at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. You can join the ranks of such great patrons as Stephen Robertson, Doug Palmer, Mark, and even our own Tracy Hurley recently joined in as a patron so she can you know spy on what we're discussing over there. Spy on what we're discussing. <laughs> <laughs> I can offer my own suggestions for what we should be for doing. For what we're doing on our show, yeah. <laughs> Tracy, you have the power now. I know what you can't <laughs> can't veto me now, Jeff. Ah, oh, darn. <laughs> now off to the interview. All right, so we are here today with Troy Dinning, famed author of many things, but today we're talking to him about his first work in Dark Sun, The Verdant Passage. Uh, welcome to the show, Troy. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I think we talked to you like a while ago when uh, when your Sundering book came out. So that's that's been, what, a year or two? At least two. At least two, yeah. I can't, yeah, I, I didn't look up the date of the publication of that, but I think it was two to three years ago, yeah. yeah. So ever since, I've been looking forward to another opportunity to chat with you and uh, keep waiting for more books to come out. So we just finally went back and, and went to the back, back catalog to, to find excuses to talk to you. Yeah, well, I've been working in Halo um, since the Sunday, and I think I think did the Crucible come out? Crucible in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I think that may have come came out after the Sundering book. Not sure though. And yeah. then I've done Halo since okay. then. So. Yeah, you you yeah. really enjoy sort of the the shared world uh, fiction, don't you? Um, yeah, you know it's it's always fun. Um, I'm a big fan of a lot of different shared worlds and and i really enjoy how you know you get into the shared world and it's very very rich because there are so many different minds contributing to it which leads to you know you you want to talk about a city and it's not just i make up a city or i make up a, a, a village you know I, it, there's things that other people have made up and you tie into it and i've, I've always found that that's really fun because it, it helps make the place seem more real to me um, as a writer, and I think probably to readers as well. Okay, yeah, and, and although when you wrote uh, The Verdant Passage, which we've discussed for, for this episode of our book club, uh, you were the first author to, to tackle uh, Dark Sun and, and the, the various locations that take place within the book, Tyr and, and um, the Forest Ridge well, the, and some of those other things. Yeah, right? yeah the, first, the first novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim Brown and Mary Kirchhoff and I had spent a year um, writing the the game portion or, or designing actually the game portion of the Dark Sun world. Um, you know, we'd met once a week for a year and just said, "Okay, we'd like to design a world where it makes sense for um, people to wear skimpy armor and and you know not have a lot of metal and and just have do a lot of the different things that." You would see in fantasy art a lot of the time, but it didn't, didn't really make, make sense. sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was our initial goal was to write a world um, where that stuff made sense. And you know, we just sat, met once a year for once a week for lunch for a year, and every week at lunch we would talk about okay, why would they do this? Why would they do that? You know, why? Why would people not wear a lot of armor? And you know, the obvious answer was, well, it's hot, um, and there's not a lot of metal, and you know, and this kind of stuff. So, 
um, you know, just to kind of all grew out of that conceit. Hmm. And we also wanted to design a world where you could do things in the in the game that would normally throw uh, a role playing Dungeons and Dragons role playing game out of balance. So we kind of designed it so that you could actually play, you know, really tough characters with 19 strengths and you know and play half giants and things like that. Do mm-hmm. psionics, obviously. So, so you actually started off in Dark Sun in in game design. Um, yeah. Yep. So, so I was a game designer. So, talk a little bit about that story. How did you end up being the the you know the beginning of Dark Sun? How how does how do you end up writing this book? Well, um, <clears throat> it started by, as I recall, we had a design meeting. Um, I was on the design staff at TSR. Mm-hmm. And we had a design meeting with I don't know seven or eight design designers, and they said we want to come up with a bunch of different campaign worlds um, to put out over the next few years. And so we brainstormed as a group a lot of different things. And one of the things we brainstormed was the basic idea that you know I just described about mm-hmm. having a really tough world, one where it made sense for people to wear you know skimpy costumes. Um, and have a different kind of approach to dragons, have a different kind of approach to the races, you know, like elves and halflings and so forth. And after that meeting, um, Tim Brown and I were assigned to develop the Dark Sun world. And that's when we, you know, started to get together and, and talk about what we would do in it. And Mary Kirchhoff, who was the... Um, chief editor of the book department said, you know, I think I'd like to be involved in in the conceptualization of this world, too. So that was the way we all decided to have our weekly lunch meetings and get together and just, you know, brainstorm the thing through. And I think we spent, I don't know, nine months or, or so doing that together before we felt we were ready to start thinking about art. And then one day we walked up into the art department and started walking around the art artists' easels and so forth, and looking at what you know their styles and what they had up hanging up behind their easels. And we walked came to Brahms' um, easel, and he was sitting there working on something, and he had this picture of Neva with the tricol hanging on the wall behind him. And we took one look at that and said, "Wow, you know that's Dark Sun." And then we'd said, and not only that, that's a new character for the Dark Sun story. Mm. So that's kind of, you know, where a lot of uh, the the flavor and, the, I don't know, the inspiration for, you know, the visual aspects of Dark Sun mm. came from. Yeah, there's certainly a few stories you hear of, of D&D settings where um, there's just one sort of iconic artist that defines that setting, right? And Dark Sun and Brahm are one of them. You know, uh, Dieter Lisi with, with Planescape is kind of one of those. Um, you know, but yeah, he, he definitely sort of uh, sets the visual of what Dark Sun looks like, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. And, you know, and he was involved in the conceptualization of it to... Um, a very large extent, uh, you know, it would be hard to overestimate his contributions to it, because once he became involved as the artist, you know, he would set and sketch creatures and just pass us pages of creatures, and we'd say, oh, you know, 
all right, we got to write a description for this and make you know write something that makes sense in the world in the in the rules and hmm. the and the story. And you know, creatures and characters and a lot of this stuff um, came from Brahms. Um, just you know, his imagination in terms of his visual imagination. Eric, you're quiet. I'll let you get a, a question in if you if you got one. Yeah. Well, if we want to get back get into the book itself, uh, in the book when you introduce, we see a change in how you start with talking about the appearance of different characters. Beginning, you actually see more. Uh, depicting the woman with her appearances and their sexual attractiveness, but later in the end of the book, you actually see that you approach that to uh, some men, too. Was that, were you trying to do something that will subvert a... Uh... I'm, I'm having a little bit of trouble understanding what you're saying, um, just the physically hearing it. Okay. Um, so... If Jeff could kind of repeat yeah, sure. it, summarize it for me. Yeah, no problem. So, so the question deals with the depe- depiction of people when they first sort of appear, uh, show up in bo- in the book. Uh, they t- you tend to start with uh, physical appearance, and especially with the women, you you describe uh, their sexual attractiveness. Uh, but then later on, you start doing the same thing with some of the male characters. Was that a, an intentional um, attempt to subvert sort of uh, stereotypes and norms in, in the way uh, people are depicted in, in stories? I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know that I did it on purpose, and I and I don't remember the writing well enough to even comment on it. So. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm just sorry. I you know I can't remember it. I remember. I remember that um, one of the things that we wanted to um, do with the story was talk about, you know, present big, powerful characters. You know, so I'm the character I remember most writing was Rikus. Um, you know, when he starts in the in the gladiatorial pit. Mm-hmm. Um, fighting the, fighting that, the gauge, right? Yeah, fighting the gauge. And I remember writing that scene, and then my editor Patrick. He was not my editor for long, but he was a great editor. Um, I can't remember his last name. Anyway, his his comment was, you know what, Rikus is going to be the hero of this story. He's going to be the champion. And you really need to focus more on him than on, you know, Aegis and some of Antithian and, and even Sidira. So um, that's really the only real hmm. conscious decision I remember about, descri- you know, the descriptions of the characters themselves, and that the, the intention was to present Rikus as um, a very powerful-looking um, kind of war-bitten, mm. um, you know, gladiator. So, mm-hmm. other than that, I, I don't really remember what was going through my mind as sure. I wrote various script, um, character descriptions. It's been 26 years. I suppose we can forgive you that. Yeah, uh, sometimes I, you know, I do remember sometimes I was trying to play against types. Mm-hmm. You know, so for instance, with the hat, the halflings and an esca and stuff, I was just trying to, you know, for instance, make an esca not seem like a cute little um, cheery halfling. You know, she was much more dangerous and, and and needed to be taken more seriously. Well, and that sort of sets the tone for how halflings in general are depicted in Dark Sun, right? They tend to yeah, be a little yeah. more dangerous in the setting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was definitely true, and that was one of the 
big things that that I tried to do was um, play against type. You know, mm-hmm. so the the elves the elves are not um, necessarily the most noble and and um, Tolkien esque of mm-hmm. beings in the in the setting. You know, of course they're they're more the the I don't know what you want to call it. Shifty, uh, conniving. <laughs> yeah, shifty, <laughs> conniving. But, you know, they, they have a reason for the way they are. Sure. But, but they're not as trustworthy and noble as, as elves normally are. Mm-hmm. You know? so. Yeah, although it's interesting to me to hear you talk about how uh, Rikus was intended to be the main character. Because on my first reading, I actually managed to listen to the audiobook of it uh, about a, a time and a half, a little bit more than half. The second time around, and the first time through it, I kind of expected uh, Rikus to be the main character because he's he's sort of the first main character who's introduced, uh, right. and, and there is a little more description of him, or whatever. But my second time through it, it occurred to me, yeah, but he spends like half the book just sitting in a prison cell. Uh, he has oh, one. He, he has one fight and then sits in a prison cell. And and Sidira seems like more of the main character to me on the second time through. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, for me, Sidira was the primary heroine, hero of the, of the whole story. Because mm-hmm. um, she's really the, the one who gets things moving and the one who is, um, at, you know, not really the leader of the, of the slave revolt, but she's definitely the impetus to, make, to keep it going. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I can definitely see that. And I think, you know, I think in a lot of ways, Zadira was, when I wrote the first draft of the book was probably the hero of the story at that time in my mind the the, the leading hero and then the editor had you shift some focus to Tarikus yeah the editor um, Pat oh man I wish I could remember his last name <laughs> great editor he's edited a lot of um, TSR books he was Margaret Weiss's editor mm. um, so people know his work yeah, yeah exactly um um, but anyway, you know, he had came. He read through it, and he said, "You know, people are going to be really interested in Rikus' story because of the gladiator aspect, hmm. and you know, being the the leader, you know, the powerful, tough warrior." And and I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. But I think that you can also see, you know, that that kind of undertone that you pointed out, where Sidira is really kind of the impetus for a lot of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, and that makes that's interesting too, because there's an element in this story where it seems like um, you're playing into stereotypes and then occasionally um, challenging those. Right? Uh, you know, Dark Sun is a dark, gritty world where slavery is just a, a normal part of life, until certain characters start to question whether that should be the case. Right? And and you know, um, you know what's I always forget his name the the noble. Um, Aegis, yeah, Aegis, uh, uh, you know, thinks that he's a good slave master and then eventually comes to the realization that, well, no, I'm actually you know, probably a bit of a hypocrite here, right? Because I'm, I'm keeping somebody in slavery um, even when I know it's wrong, you know? Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, um, I think that that's probably one of the, the, more things that I that you know, thinking back 26 years ago, that I was doing at the time was um, kind of playing with stereotypes and, and flipping them on their head because that, that's really what Darkson is all about. Is um, you know, you take 
uh, you know, a dragon, and the idea of the dragon not being something that is hatched, but something that's created through mm-hmm. a through a act of magic and will. Um, you know, that, that that's just not your normal everyday dragon either. So sure, but even even then, you could. I mean, it's certainly um, there's. This isn't the first post-apocalyptic storyline that's ever been told, right? You could play into those <laughs> no. stereotypes, but but there's a, a an element of challenging those stereotypes even as you, you play into it. Like, we need an excuse for people to be scantily clad and whatever, so for all that fantasy art in the past makes sense. Uh, but at the same time, like, it's not um, necessarily overly sexualized or anything like that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't recall trying to... Um I don't recall trying to make it sexual at all. I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of um, oh, what do I want to say, gratuitously sexual. Sure. I just tried to tr- present relationships and people as as I thought they would be in the, the circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, you've got Rikus and and as being a gladiator, and he's you know he's has a very short time to live. He thinks um, assumes. Um, you know, he's got a gladiator fighter that he um, lives and fights with, and that's Neva. And, you mm-hmm. know, he's obviously, I don't know if he even understands that he's in love with her, but he is. Mm-hmm. And then he also is kind of seduced by and, and um, falls in love with Sadira, and he's, you know, he's kind of torn by all of that. And that's something that I think happens to people in the real world on a reg- regular basis. But when you layer that in with, you know what his life is like. Um, it, he takes a different approach toward mm-hmm. how he's going to resolve those situations. Yeah, and and our other uh, co-host who who's not with us now, but was was here earlier in the discussion, even pointed out that that it was nice to see. Well, well, Rikus has two lovers in the in the story. Uh, by about the halfway point, Sidira kind of has the same thing going on between Rikus yeah. and, and Aegis. Yep, yep, exactly. Yep, Sadira has two lovers, and, and Neva eventually, not in this book, of course, so I don't want to spoil it. But, you know. <laughs> I haven't read the other books yet. It's on my yeah. list now. Okay. Yeah. I have, so, but still, yes. Yeah. Eric knows. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Eric, it looked yeah. like you, you said you found something in the acknowledgments. What you, would you get there? In the acknowledgement, I see a Pat McGillan. Would that That's be the last? That's your editor. Yeah, yeah. He was the first editor on the project, and um, you know, you, I can't really say enough about his contributions to it. He really had a lot of insight to what was going to make the the story um, grab people, and uh, you know, he just he didn't end up being the editor throughout the whole project, mm-hmm. and. Um, that's, you know, n- not because of, of anything that, he, you know, it's, it's just that it was kind of sad that he wasn't because sure. he had a lot of contributions. But he sort of set, helped set the, to... set the tone early on, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, a lot, of this, a lot of the tone in terms of the characters and who, the, you know, how the characters were presented and, and who was going to be the lead in the, you know, where we're going to place the emphasis on the mm-hmm. characters and try to um, who's going to drive the story forward. He had a lot to say about that. 
Very cool. So, so speaking of setting tone, um, you wrote this book, I think we estimated about 26 years ago, or rather the book was published 26 years ago. You were probably writing it before that. Uh, yeah. And, and you've, you've been pretty busy writing things since then. Uh, so, so in the, in the, the library of, of Troy Denning accomplishments, how does, how does this sit in that tale? Is, you know, where does this, this take you and, and what did you learn from this that carried forward? You know, it's it's interesting. It's it's in a lot of ways. Dark Sun is in a lot of ways closest to my heart because um, it's the kind of fantasy world that that I really enjoyed reading. Um, it's the kind of you know it, it was in a lot of ways the the fantasy world that that I wanted to read as a younger kid. Um, you know, I read a lot of Burroughs and, and enjoyed that. This was taking it to the next step, and it was kind of combining it with D and D. So, um, in that aspect, it, it's really a lot closer to my heart. It wasn't. I mean, they sold very, very well. Don't get me wrong; that um, they sold very uh, quite well. But they're not my best sellers. I mean, um, you wrote Star Wars, shot. right? So, yeah, I wrote Star Wars, <laughs> and, and Waterdeep sold more than than Dark Sun by. Yeah. Um, Wonderdeep is actually, I think, still my um, best-selling oh, book. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had written other books that sold better. But to this day, when I go to a convention, um, there will always be a handful of people who come up to get Dark Sun signed, to talk about Dark Sun. So I, I kind of consider it my um, supersized cult following, mm-hmm. you know, um, because, it's you know, it sold very well, so it's, too, it sold too well to be called a cult, but it has that hanging power that, that it just, you know, there's always somebody who still is into it and still wants to play it and, and read it. And I, I think that's been one of the most satisfying um, experiences I've had as a writer is just, you know, going to a cult or going to a convention um, 25, 20, 25 years after the, the book was published and still seeing how much people enjoy it. Yeah, well, people love Dark Sun, and there's not a huge library of Dark Sun material for them to, to consume, so I can see where it would definitely have a following, right? Everybody yeah. who reads Dark Sun reads The Prison Pinhead. Not everybody who reads The Forgotten Realms reads Waterdeep, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. very true. Now, you mentioned that this is the type of story that, that you enjoyed uh, reading in fantasy, and, and that makes me think that there there are stories that inspired um, uh, Dark Sun. So uh, you mentioned Burroughs. Uh, any others that yeah. of the sort of those classic fantasy stories that, that maybe um, people should check out if they want to see where Dark Sun came from? Conan. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, you know, the, I, I would say that John Carter of Mars. All right, uh, that's the one I named earlier. Okay. <laughs> yep. John Carter of Mars and Conan. Um had a lot of influence on Dark Sun. Right on. And we actually have a have a podcast where uh, we have some guys that are going through the old Appendix N books and reading and discussing them all. So they've, they've talked some Conan and they've talked some John Carter, Carter of Mars. So people should go check that out on the Appendix N podcast. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Well, yeah. Eric, do you have any last questions? No. I. Awesome. Thank you for writing these books. I mean... Yeah. From a well, personal from a personal end, these were my first D and D novels I ever read, and 
been a big fan, so thank you for those. Oh, well, thank you for having me on, and thanks for reading them and, and you know, keeping keeping them alive all these years. It's really um, a very special thing, to, you know, to have books still, having people still excited about these stories yeah. after so many years. It, it's really very rewarding to me as a, inside as a writer. Yeah, this is one of those series I've always heard about uh, and and never actually got around to reading until now, and and I I really enjoyed it. It held up really well. You know, I don't have the sense of of nostalgia that some people have with it, uh, and yet it still held up really well as a as a great book. And I'm I'm really looking forward to looking at the rest of the series. Oh, great! Well, I hope you enjoy them. Yeah. So right. yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. Anything else you want to talk about? People should be looking for upcoming uh, books of yours that they should uh, look for on the shelves. Well. Um my next book out will be Retribution, Halo Retribution, in um, the end of August of this year. Um, it's the second in a series that I have started. Uh, it follows the story Halo Last Light. Um, so I think if people are into space opera, which is what I've been writing for the last 10 or 15 years, because yeah. um, I, you know, I have a obviously a huge love of Star Wars and mm-hmm. Halo and and all kinds of um, space opera stories. Yeah, are any of your novels from Star Wars canon anymore? You know, I don't, I don't think that they're tech canon. I, um, you know, certainly not in the sense that they're part of the modern line okay. and yeah. part of the line going forward with Rogue One and right. you know, you know that. So they're. I don't think they're canon anymore. Um, yeah, I, I know when doesn't they doesn't mean. Yeah, I know when uh, when J.J. Uh, Abrams sort of took over, they they sort of said um, nothing from the old expanded universe is canon uh, until we acknowledge it somewhere in one of the shows or the movies or whatever. So I just didn't know if there was any yeah, additions that you had exactly. to the universe that showed up. Do you, um, you know, so yeah, exactly. And I don't know to tell you the truth. I don't know if any of what I've written is showing up in its form. I mean, okay. obviously there's. Some uh, similarities between Kylo Ren and Jason Solo, and, sure, yeah, and so forth, yeah. But, yeah, uh, well, and I know like uh, um, Grand Admiral Thrawn has shown up in in um, in the cartoon in Star Wars Rebels, so that's you know he's as a character has sort of become a canon, but he's a different sort of thing now. So I know some of the ex- extended universe has sort of slowly seeped its way back in, but yeah, and and that's pretty much what they said from the beginning. What happened was that they just didn't want to be bound to all of the huge, immense volume of right. material that had been put out before. And I, I can kind of understand that, because if you're trying to make a movie, um, you need to have the freedom to appeal to the 90% of the viewers who haven't read the EU. Right. You know, um, So I can kind of understand why they, where they were coming from with that. Yep. But, you know, it sure be one of my... It would be a thrill for me someday if... Um, Saba Sabatine ended up being <laughs> a master in one of the movies or something. That'd be go. cool. That'd be cool. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, and in the meantime, people should look out for your your Halo work, right? Yeah, Halo Halo Retribution is the next one coming out, and Halo Last Light is the most recent um, novel I've had out in Halo. Very good. And uh, and hopefully we keep crossing our fingers that there'll be an announcement someday soon, and we'll get to see uh, you writing in uh, in a D and D world again. So. Um, maybe someday. Yeah, that'd be fun. Very good. That'd be fun. 
All right, well, thanks for joining us. All right, well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And that's the end of this episode of this Tome Show Book Club. We want to thank Troy Dinning for joining us, uh, as well as our listeners who use our affiliate links at uh, DMs Guild and Amazon, and our patrons like Doug Palmer, uh, Mark, and, uh, and Stephen Robertson, and Tracy. Uh, thank you all for supporting us. Uh, if you want to be like them, you can head over to patreon.com slash show, where you'll also get the inside scoop of the things that we're doing in the future, uh, and maybe give us a chance to get some feedback in there as well about where we should be going. And other ways you can contact us include email at thetomeshow at gmail.com, our biz line, 919-BIZ-TOME, that's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Dark Magic and on my blog on saradarkmagic.com. You can find Jeff on Twitter at, at Squatch, that's S-Q-U-A-C-H. And Eric, you can find at Eric M. Pack. Oh, also the, the uh, Tome Show Twitter account is, is a thing now. Uh, I've been occasionally tweeting from there. It's at the Tome Show. So check that out. You can also find our show notes at thetomeshow.com. And that's our thoughts for Verdant Passage. Up next in May and June of 2017, we'll be reading Skull Sworn by Brian Staveley. Until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.